Well, thank you very much for your kind welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I've preached here when Andrew Woolsey was pastoring the congregation, but uh, that was some time ago, but it's a pleasure for me to be with you here this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to the second book of Chronicles, which you'll find, not surprisingly, immediately after the first book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 26, and again immediately before the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Let me set the scene for you. Uh, as we begin to think about this very striking passage, we're in the first half of the 8th century before Christ. This king, Isaiah, that we will be reading about and thinking about, came to the throne in the year 792 before Christ, and he dies 52 years later in the year 740, significantly significantly the year that Isaiah tells us he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And there is a connection, I think, an internal connection between the death of Isaiah and the circumstances of his death and the remarkable revelation that Isaiah received in the year 740. Isaiah began well, but he ended very badly. But the roots of him ending badly did not begin with Isaiah. They actually can be traced back to his father, Amaziah. So keep that in mind as we read Second Chronicles chapter 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elat, restored it to Judah, after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbaal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Isaiah. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Isaiah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephelah 
and in the plain he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands for he loved the soil. Moreover, Isaiah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by the GL, the secretary, and Maseah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Isaiah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Isaiah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests after him, looked and beheld, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Isaiah, from first to last, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Isaiah slept with his fathers. And they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper, and Jotham his son reigned in his place. Almost our Lord Jesus Christ's last words to his disciples before he was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and deserted by them all 
His last words to them were almost these, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's one thing to be tempted and it is another thing to be led into temptation. Jesus knew the frailty and the fragility of these men who so professed to be his faithful disciples. They were well-meaning men. They were all but for Judas converted men. But they were men who did not know the fragility and frailty of their hearts. And so Jesus said to them, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. In Second Chronicles 26, we have the account of a king who began with such promise. On all sides he saw triumph after triumph after triumph. His fame spread far and wide, even to the borders of Egypt. He was renowned. He was noted. He was successful. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. The passage divides very simply into two halves. In verses 1 through um, 10, we read of Isaiah's triumphs. And then in the remainder of the chapter, we read of Isaiah's tragedy. His triumphs and then his tragedy. And his triumphs were many. He was a man, we are told, um, who sought the Lord. He set himself, verse 5, to seek the Lord in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He was a young man full of spiritual promise. He understood from the very beginning that his success as king depended on him fearing the Lord. That is, reverencing the Lord, honoring the Lord, acknowledging the Lord, obeying the Lord, loving the Lord. He began with such promise. And we're told from verse 6 that he went out, made war against the Philistines, and broke down the various citadels of the Philistines in Gath and Jabna and Ashdod. Everywhere he turned, there were victories, there were triumphs, there were successes. And within Jerusalem itself, we are told, you notice from verse 8, he built towers, he fortified um, the city at, at every angle. He built towers in the wilderness, cut out many cisterns. He provided remarkably for the vast flocks and herds that, that he had come to possess. He was a man who was going from strength to strength, from triumph to triumph. He had a vast army under his command. We're told it numbered 307,000 
500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. He had provided well and prepared well within the boundaries of his own territory to safeguard and guard the people against their enemies. And we're told at the end of verse 15, is it? Or verse 16, his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. And it's in the passive voice. Who was it who marvelously helped him? Well, it was the Lord. Look back to verse 5. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Here was a man who began with such promise. He was but 16 years old, we are told in verse 3, when he began to reign. The first 15 or so years of his reign were a co-regency with his father. His father had been captured in battle with the northern kingdom Israel. And for 10 years or so, his father was in captivity. And so for the first years of his reign... Isaiah was a co-regent, but he was the effective leader of his people. And after his father died, for the remainder of the 52 years over which he ruled Israel, he was the sole king. And at first, his promise and his progress was remarkable. But he was a man who became infatuated with himself and with his success. Did you notice verse 16? But when he was strong, what happened? What happened with the triumphs and the successes that accumulated with such rapidity? What happened? He became proud to his destruction. He had begun so well, so promisingly, so hopefully. But you know as well as I do that it's one thing to begin well and it's another thing to end well. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who endures to the end will be saved. It's not those who begin with such flourish who should be most taken note of, but those who are persisting and persevering, often through difficulty and weakness and struggle and trial and trouble, but who are pressing on faithfully to the end, those are the ones to take note of and to mark out and emulate in the life of the church. And so you have Isaiah's triumphs. But then the remainder of the chapter tells us about his tragedy. And his tragedy became encapsulated in one particular event. Now I don't think that the chronicler is telling us that this is where his pride began. But this is where his pride erupted. Notice how verse 16 begins, but when he was strong, he grew proud. Pride didn't simply overtake him in a moment. It didn't come from left field 
out of the blue. It grew, it was nurtured and nourished in a life that had become strong, self-reliant. Do you remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12? In the context, he tells us that he besought the Lord three times to deliver him and cure him of some particular illness and weakness that was debilitating him. He says, three times I sought the Lord to rescue me from this debility, this weakness, this trial. And the Lord said to him, my strength is made perfect in weakness. But what you have here is the reverse. Here is weakness growing out of strength. It was because he had become so self-conscious and self-preening about his triumphs and his successes that pride began to take root in his life. And he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And then what we have is the chronicler telling us about a particular instance which manifested the pride that had been growing and nurturing in his heart. He took it upon himself to do what the word of the Lord forbade anyone to do except for those in the household of Aaron, the priests, the Levites. He decided to take it upon himself to enter the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now he would know that the word of the Lord forbade that. God had decreed that only particular men from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron, that they and they alone were responsible for the privilege of entering into the temple, into the holy place, to make sacrifice and to offer incense on the altar of incense. It was clear, it was the, the plain, unambiguous um, word of the Lord. But Isaiah took it upon himself boldly, willfully, flagrantly, deliberately, with open-eyed defiance to do what God forbade him to do. Now to me it's very remarkable that this should be the particular sin that the chronicler draws our attention to. And the reason why I say that is this. The word of God could not have been clearer regarding who should offer incense on the altar of incense. You read about it in Leviticus and Numbers, almost verse after verse, chapter after chapter, God himself demarcates who is to do what and who is not to do what. And yet here is someone not inadvertently sinning, 
not unintentionally breaching the law of the Lord. Here is someone who is saying, effectively, I defy the Lord Yahweh. I am the king. Look how blessed I have been. Look at my successes and my triumphs. On every side I'm conquering. God's people have never had it so good. Pride has a way of blinding us to the obvious. Now what is pride? Pride essentially is self-idolatry. Pride is saying, look at me. What a good boy am I. Pride is that attitude that says, not to you, O Lord, not to you, but to me be the praise and the glory. Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look what abilities I have. Look what gifts I possess. Pride has this sinister, and I use that word advisedly, and I'll return to it. Pride has that sinister capacity to blind us and intellectually to disfigure our understanding. You might think to yourself, how could a king, how could a king within the covenant people of God be so blind, so willful, so arrogant, so deliberate? We'll think back to the very beginning. Because in the Garden of Eden, what was it that caused our first parents to sin, to fail, to fall? What brought about their collapse? Well, essentially, essentially, they said, we know better than God. God has forbidden us to take the fruit of a particular tree. There was nothing magical about the fruit. God was giving them a test. He was saying to them, the whole creation, as it were, I have given to you. But there is one thing I'm forbidding to you. Not because the fruit is bad and will give you a sore tummy or will give you some kind of strange properties, but because I'm demarcating a sphere to test your obedience, that you will test and obey me simply because I require it of you. Pride is the mother of all sins. Pride dethrones God and enthrones self. It's the sin of Satan. It's the sin that brought him down and had him cast out of the presence of God. You know, it's very remarkable if, if I were to ask you this morning, um, you know about Sodom and Gomorrah and what Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious for in their day. If I were to ask you, what was the great sin of Sodom? I guess most people would say, well, Ian, that's a no-brainer. The great sin of Sodom was its immorality, its willful, egregious homosexuality, its sexual perversions. That's not what the Bible says. 
That's not what the Bible says. You read Ezekiel 16. It says the great sin of Sodom was pride. Pride gave birth to the sexual perversions that so defaced the life of Sodom and brought down the judgment of God upon it. It wasn't the sexual perversion per se. It was the pride that gave it birth. The pride that says God may have said that a man should leave his, his mother and father and, and the woman as well and the two shall become one flesh. God may have said one man, one woman in monogamous relationship for life. But we say, but we say. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. He goes to enter the temple. The, the priests are appalled. They try to restrain him. The king becomes angry. He takes the censer of incense. And this leprous disease, this skin deformity breaks out in his forehead. And of course that was a sign in those times of ritual, uncleanness. And the king suddenly realizes, what have I done? And he's ushered out of the temple. He ends his life living as a leper in a separate house for he was excluded. He was excommunicated from the house of the Lord. This man who had begun with such promise. This man who would have been looked up to and admired. Who we are told feared the Lord. In the days of Zechariah he was instructed in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord God made him prosper. But look how he ended. Look how he ended. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's one thing to begin well. And it's another thing to go on well. And it's another thing altogether to end well. The Christian church is littered with people who began well with such promise. But who ended up making shipwreck of their faith. We don't know in what spiritual state Isaiah died. Did he die a reprobate, shut out, cast out from the presence of the Lord? We're not told. What we are told is that his end was dramatically different from his beginning. Now I think this has many things to say to us. It's, it's a warning, first of all, to pastors and elders. It's a warning to people like me. Not to think because God has raised us up in some way and used us in some particular way to the blessing of others that, that all will continue to go well to the end of our days. It may not. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The temptation to be, to be proud and to think, haven't I done well? I was thinking this morning. And praying, Lord, if anyone ever in the 40 years of my ministry has been brought to faith through my life or through my preaching, 
To God all praise and glory. Lord, forgive me for even a moment if I have thought to myself, well, didn't I do well? Didn't I speak well? Wasn't my preaching attended with power from on high? That's to rob God of the glory. What do you have that you did not first receive? Brother elders, we are the dust of the earth that God has been pleased to use in his service to to minister oversight and care and instruction to his people. We have nothing but what God has given to us. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. It's a word to congregations. We can become proud of our history and our heritage. We become a bit like Elijah. I alone am left. And the Lord said, well, actually, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But we think because of our history and our heritage, we are those who alone are remaining faithful. One of the things I teach in different seminaries is Scottish church history. 1843, 474 ministers disrupted from the Church of Scotland. Almost 40% formed the Free Church of Scotland. Charles Hodge called it the purest church in Christendom. And within 30 years, it was more liberal than the Church of Scotland it left. It's a remarkable phenomenon. And I'm regularly asked, Ian, how do you account for the rapidity of the decline? Well, I think there are many reasons, but the one above all, I think, is pride. We are the reformed. And the danger is Satan comes and says, you've done very well. Oh, you're remaining faithful, and these others, well, you know, they're they're unfaithful, but you are holding fast. You are holding fast. Brothers and sisters, it's only by the grace of God that we hold fast. It is only by the kindness and the good pleasure and the love and the protection and the grace of God that we are not like other people. We can never say, Lord, like the publican and the Pharisee, the Pharisees, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like You know, I I worship in the Free Church of Scotland. I was 20 years a Church of Scotland minister. I think the danger is you say, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the Church of Scotland. I'm not like the Episcopal Church. We're not like the, the Anglican Church. It's just like the Pharisee and the publican. And all, you know, all the publican did, he said, God, he couldn't even lift up his eyes, which was the normal practice for prayer. We bow our heads. That's a modern phenomenon, actually. Bowing your head, closing your eyes for prayer and benediction. Strange thing. He wouldn't even lift up his head. And he said, Lord, be merciful to me. Remember what he says after that? Very few translations translate it properly. He says, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. We need to guard against pride. Of all the sins that God hates, he hates the sin of pride. Pride would pull God down from his throne. Then I think it's a warning to parents, to, to fathers and mothers, not to pride ourselves in the way we are raising our children. You know, we are seeking to be faithful in family worship. That's wonderful. I hope you all engage in family worship. Catechizing your children. 
singing with them, teaching them the word of God. But the danger is, I only speak from my own heart. The danger is you think, aren't we doing well? Aren't we doing well? Pride can be such an infection that kills vital religion. You know, it's very remarkable that the one man who ever lived, who had the right to boast, never boasted. The Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I can do nothing except through my Father. John 5, 19. He lived in humble-hearted obedience to the Father, in dependence on the Holy Spirit. He was the one man who could have said, look at me. But he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was that will? Well, he crystallizes it in John 17. I have glorified you on earth. The one man who could have boasted Never boasted. In fact, the one time, the only time Jesus ever draws attention to his person, to his temperament, to his spiritual psychology, we might say, is in Matthew 11, when he says, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the only time he ever draws attention to his spiritual psychology. Isaiah is a warning to us and a reminder to us to watch and pray. The devil will always be seeking to infect us with the sin of pride. But as I close, I want you to remember and to notice this with me. We are told, did you notice this, that Isaiah... Um, he set himself to seek the Lord in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of the Lord and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. As long as he sought the Lord. You see, in church life, we can very easily drift from the epicenter, the Lord. Why do we come on the Lord's day for him why do we gather for prayer for him why do we evangelize to, to fill Crumlin EPC no, for him if it pleases him to fill a place to God all praise and glory as long as he sought the Lord the Lord is to be the epicenter of our life but just as I close I wonder if it struck you what we're told about his father Amaziah. We're told that in verse 4 he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So who was Amaziah? Well if you look back to chapter 25 verse 2 and should always read scripture in context. We read about Amaziah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Isaiah was raised in a home by a father who sought the Lord, but not with his whole heart. 
I often ask myself, Lord, how much of my half-heartedness has impacted and impressed itself in my children. The Lord has been very gracious to me with my four children, very gracious. But you know, children are perceptive. Children could see and sense whether what we are saying to them, we're saying out of hearts that are undivided. Or whether we are speaking to them out of hearts that are not holy following the Lord. I think for fathers in particular, this is a challenge. To be men of an undivided heart. Mothers too, but it's fathers I think who set the pulse beat. The spiritual pulse beat in homes. An undivided heart. There's nothing you can better bequeath to your children. Because what will count with your children is not just that you read with them and that you pray with them and that you catechize them and that you bring them to worship. What matters to your children is that as they look at the whole panoply of your life, they see a pulse beat, a rhythm that says to them, an undivided heart, an undivided heart, an undivided heart for me to live as Christ. And to die as gain. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. Let us pray. Father, we ask your forgiveness for the many, many, many times we have desired some of the glory for ourselves when we have even tried to seize some of the glory for ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, every particle of pride in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, as elders, as parents. Forgive us, Lord, as church members. Forgive us, Lord, whoever we are. May we instinctively turn every particle of praise to you for what do we have that we did not first receive. Remember us for good, Lord. Forgive our many sins. Make us the people you have saved us to be. And we ask it in our Saviour Jesus Christ's name. Amen.